there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. The women who make a difference are those in whom Jesus Christ has made a difference. That is the crucial question. Do you walk in harmony with him? Can two walk together unless they are agreed, the Bible says. And my whole effort in everyday living is to bring all that I am and all that I have and all that I do and all that I suffer to Jesus Christ as an offering and to live in company with him. If we learn to live in company with Christ, our obedience is going to matter. And never mind how it's going to matter. I really don't think it's our business to sit down and try to calculate the kind of difference that Jesus Christ is going to make in the world through us. Do you suppose that that little boy who brought his lunch to Jesus could possibly have imagined the use that Jesus was going to make of that? And the woman who broke the box of perfume so that the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Could she know that she would be spoken of for generations to come? When I think of the death of the five men in Ecuador, how little any of them could have imagined the difference that their death was going to make in the lives of literally tens of thousands of people. And it never fails. Wherever I go, I meet the people whose lives have been affected for good by the testimony of five relatively ordinary men who were doing what for them was just the next thing, the obvious task that God was asking them to do next. I'm so glad we sang that uh, little song, Because He Lives. That always reminds me of back when my grandson Jim was two years old and my granddaughter Elizabeth was six. I happened to be talking with Valerie on the phone, and I could hear this howling in the background and also singing. And so I said to Val, what in the world is going on? And she said, well, Jim is having his hair washed in the bathroom, in the bathtub, and he's howling, and his sister Elizabeth is trying to comfort him by singing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, uh, how's it go? He. He holds the future. Life is worth the living, no matter if you've got soap in your eyes or what, and just because he lives. And every time I hear that song now, I think about that time when Elizabeth was doing her level best to help her poor little brother, who was having a very hard time and feeling that life was hardly worth living at that point. I have in my study shelves of books written by people whose lives and therefore whose writings have made tremendous difference in my life. And one of them, as I've already told you, was Amy Carmichael. And when I was working on the biography, Lars and I had the privilege of going to India in order to visit the mission in Donavur, South India, where that she had established. 
And in the nine days that we stayed there, I was permitted to sit in Amy Carmichael's room, surrounded by Amy Carmichael's books. And they had been arranged according to preference. So there was one whole bookcase of her favorite books. You can be sure I spent a great deal of time examining those books, the underlinings, the marginal notes, the indexes that she'd written in the back. I was delighted to find that she also indexed her books as I do. When I read a book that is powerfully potent and helpful in my life, I put the things which are most outstanding in the back of the book so that I can find them, make myself a little index. And among the books on my shelves are Hannah Whitehall Smith's little classic, The Christian's Secret of a Happy Life. How many of you have not read The Christian's Secret of a Happy Life? Five people have not read that. <laughs> well, Hannah Whittall Smith was a Philadelphia Quaker who wrote that book, which has never gone out of print in more than a hundred years, so you know it's got to be a good book, The Christian's Secret of a Happy Life. I recommend it to you. And one of the things that I particularly loved in that book was her concept of the passage in Psalm 68, verses 15 to 17. At least I'm assuming that this is where she got it. It says in, here, in, in this psalm, the hill of Bashan is a hill of God indeed, a hill of many peaks is Bashan's hill. But, O oh, hill of many peaks, why gaze in envy at the hill where the Lord delights to dwell, where the Lord himself will live forever? Twice ten thousand were God's chariots, thousands upon thousands, when the Lord came in holiness from Zion. I would think of the hill of Bashan as any one of the hills that you and I have to climb, the difficulties, the hard places that we have to struggle upward. Why gaze in envy when you're struggling upward on one of those difficult hills at the hill where the Lord delights to dwell, where the Lord himself will live forever? We certainly should keep our eyes upon that hill and look forward to that time when life's struggles will be over. But in the meantime, we still have to struggle, don't we? But Hannah Whittlesmith shows how we can make those struggles very different. Using the chariots of God, and this is what she says about that, I have not a shadow of doubt that if all our eyes could be opened today, we should see our homes and our places of business and the streets we traverse filled with the chariots of God. And undoubtedly, she also had in mind that wonderful story of the prophet and his servant, and the servant could see nothing but the chariots of the enemy, and the prophet was able to see that the whole mountain was full of the invisible chariots of God. She goes on to say, there is no need for any one of us to walk for lack of chariots. That cross in my inmate of your household who has hitherto made life a burden to you, and who has been the juggernaut car to crush your soul into dust, may henceforth be a glorious chariot to carry you to the heights of heavenly patience and long-suffering. That misunderstanding, that mortification, that unkindness, that disappointment, that loss, that defeat, any of you 
suffering any of those things today? Am I ringing any bells out there with that list? Let me read it again. That misunderstanding, anybody know anything about that? That mortification, that unkindness, that disappointment, that loss, that defeat. All these are chariots waiting to carry you to the very heights of victory you have so longed to reach. Mount into them, then, with thankful hearts and lose sight of all second causes in the shining of his love who will carry you in his arms safely and triumphantly over it all. There are several different metaphors that you will find me using today, and I am conscious that I am mixing metaphors, but they all point to the same truth, that out of weakness we are made strong. Out of the emptiness of that clay pot that Paul speaks of in the second, uh, fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians, my consciousness that I have no resources in myself, that I am here to pour out wine and break bread for the life of the world, my consciousness of my helplessness and my weakness and my emptiness is the very receptacle of God's power. It is the thing which qualifies the unqualified person, Elizabeth Elliot. One of the verses that I have in the front of my little notebook that I carry with me wherever I go to remind myself of my position is, uh, has this verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 1, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. There is no question of our being qualified in ourselves. The qualification comes from God, and it is he who has entrusted us or has qualified us to dispense his new covenant. There is no question of our being qualified in ourselves. So the empty vessel, the clay pot, carries within it a priceless treasure, the power of Christ. And Paul says we are nothing more than clay pots, but we contain this priceless treasure, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when I lived with the Alka Indians in that little house with no walls, everybody had clay pots and nobody was interested in the pots. Everybody was interested in what was in the pots. And I realized that I was nothing but a clay pot, very common, very cheap, very breakable. And nobody there had the slightest idea that this freak, this foreign liability in their midst, had a priceless treasure to offer. So here's another metaphor, not a clay pot, but a chariot. And these very difficulties, these things which we find so hard for human flesh to bear, instead of being obstacles and excuses why we can't make a difference in the world, and disclaimers become the very chariots by which God wants to raise us to victory. The chariots waiting to carry you to the very heights of victory you have so longed to reach. Mount into them then with thankful hearts. And that is a key right there. Mount into them with thankful hearts. It would be impossible for us to count it all joy 
when we fall into various kinds of temptation and trouble, if it were not, that that's not the end of the story. God gives us these difficulties purposely in order to give, up, to give us receptacles of power, places in which we know we can't do it by ourselves, areas where we have to call upon him for his help, as I described in my own experience of motherhood. In that same passage that I read in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes some of his difficulties. He says, we are hard-pressed, but never hemmed in. We're bewildered, yet never at our wit's end. Hunted, we are never abandoned to our fate. Struck down, we are not left to die. And I like what Philip's translation says, they are knocked down, but never knocked out. Wherever we go, we carry death with us in our body. The, the death that Jesus died, that in this body also, life may reveal itself, the life that Jesus lives. For continually, while still alive, we are being surrendered into the hands of death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in this mortal body. And I only have one mortal body, and so do you. Almost every mortal body in this room is female. We didn't have any choice about that. I see quite a few of you who are old as I am, and I am so grateful for being old. I will be officially old in December, 65. And I think it's wonderful, and I don't want to downplay it or laugh about it and make silly jokes about it. Uh, I think it's absolutely marvelous to think that I'm within five years of the biblical quotient of three score years and ten. And just think of all that we have to look forward to. And furthermore, I think it's a good idea for me to tell you I'm 65 so that you won't think I'm 75, right? <laughs> but what's wrong with being 75? How wonderful. And I th when I saw Willis Horton up here, I thought, wouldn't I love to be able to sit at the feet of that old woman? And I'm sure Willis does not mind if I call her an old woman. I think she's a little bit older than I am, and uh, I'm just so grateful for, for her. The first time I met her was in Illinois. It was not very long ago, just a few years ago, and I just felt as if I'd known her all my life, and I've only seen her one other time, and I noticed both times that she wears gorgeous shoes. <laughs> and lo and behold, I found out she wears the same size I do. She has made a difference in my life. She gave me two bags full of shoes. I'm very grateful for that. She's not the only one that's made a difference in some of those outward things. Corabel Morgan. Do you remember when you came to Shandia, Corabel? I'm sure you do. You don't. She doesn't remember it, she says. She came to my jungle station before I, it was after Jim was killed, and when I was living with the Quechua Indians, not with the Alcas, and I didn't know this lady from a hole in the ground, and I, she certainly didn't know me, and I don't know how she guessed right, but she brought me clothes. I mean, can you imagine thinking of bringing a poor missionary clothes? I guess she didn't want me to look like a missionary. And uh, I've never forgotten several outfits that, that she brought to me then. So I appreciate Willis is giving me the beautiful shoes, and Cora Bell's giving me those nice clothes when I was a jungle missionary. I also appreciate my friend Norma Durasset, who is here in the audience, who did her best to try to get me to change my hairdo one time. 
and it wasn't like this. It was even, it was more modern than this. But I remember she said to me then, you know, Lisbon, you are a now person, but you don't have a now hairdo. And I didn't have it then, and I don't have it now. I was a then person then, and I am a then person now. But back to what Paul is talking about. If you're hard-pressed, if you're bewildered, if you're hunted, if you're struck down, what is it for? Is it because God wants you to be bewildered and hunted and hard-pressed and struck down? No. It's because God wants the bewilderment and the hunting and the hard pressures and the strikings down to be receptacles of power, but they won't be unless you receive them gladly. As Hannah Whittle Smith says, mount into them the chariots now, the other metaphor, with thankful hearts. God's chariots are always there to carry us. Don't you ever forget it. Some of you this morning may be in heartbreaking situations. You may feel as if this is the end. It's probably not the end. I know it's not the end of God's story, and there will always be that chariot. Another woman who has made a difference in my life, another that I never met, whose books are on the shelves of my study, Lilius Trotter. Now, do not come at the book table and say, do you have Lilius Trotter's books? We don't have them. No bookstore has them, except maybe a second-hand bookstore, if you're very fortunate. They're all out of print. They're both out of print, as far as I well know. She did write more than two, but I have, I have two or three in my study. They're all out of print, but Lilius Trotter wrote two little gems of books, one called Parables of the Cross and one called Parable, Parables of the Christ Life, and she dedicated one of those two to Amy Carmichael, whom she never met, but they were women on the same wavelength. And this is from one of Lilius Trotter's private diaries, the subject of strength out of weakness. So many questions lie ahead concerning the work, she wrote. And she was an English missionary who founded the Algiers Mission Band, which later merged with the North Africa Mission. I believe she was the first English missionary in that area of North Africa. So she had tremendous responsibility. And so many questions lie ahead concerning the work, and a great comforting came this morning in the chapter in Job 28. God finds a way for the wind and the water and the lightning. The way for the wind is the region of the greatest emptiness. The way for the water is to the place of lowest depth. And the way for the lightning, as science proves, is along the line of the greatest weakness. If any man lack, there is God's condition for his inflow of the spiritual understanding. The place of greatest emptiness, the place of lowest depth, and the place of greatest weakness. That is precisely the place which is God's condition for the inflow of the spiritual understanding. 
But you know, these pressures and these sorrows and these difficulties and these very small but daily irritations are not going to make a saint out of anybody. It is your response that will change your life. We all know people that have been through horrible suffering and have come out embittered, angry, impossible to get along with. And we roll our eyes and we shrug and we throw up our hands and we say, well, poor soul, no wonder when you think of what she's been through. And then we all know somebody like Corey Ten Boom, who radiated joy. Why? Because everything had worked so wonderfully well in her life? Here was a woman who had been through suffering that makes my, prob my problems in my own life look like nothing at all. Concentration camp. Having her father die there after ten days and her sister starve to death. And Corey herself going through excruciating trials and tribulations. So what makes the difference between that embittered and impossible to get along with person and Corey Ten Boom? It is not the circumstances. It's the response. It's the willingness to receive in that place of emptiness and weakness God's power and to say, thank you, Lord. It's the willingness to climb into the chariot, which is the last thing in the world I would have chosen, and to say, Lord, this is your vehicle to carry me to joy and to victory. I'll take it. And back to that little Mary, that Jewish girl who made the greatest difference that any human choice ever resulted in. What was her response? Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Let it happen as you say. Just let it happen, Lord. It certainly wasn't her plans. It looked as though it could be very upsetting to her plans. And what if the people in the town were convinced that she had been a fornicator? Jewish law would require that she be stoned to death. There was no hesitation, as far as we can tell. Just all of me for you forever, Lord, here I am. Do anything you want with me. And, of course, there's not just one book, but a whole shelf of books in my study by Amy Carmichael. And it was when I was 14 years old that I was introduced to her writings by the headmistress of the school that I attended in Florida. And I was completely hooked. And I went to the headmistress and borrowed one book after another and devoured them. And one of the poems of hers that I memorized out of her little book of poetry toward Jerusalem, which is in print, it's one of the 14 books listed in the back of my biography of her, was entitled, In Acceptance, Life Peace. And Amy Carmichael's words, undoubtedly forged in very hot fires, carried me through my first husband's death. Not long after God brought to my mind those words that I quoted this morning from Isaiah 43, 2, 
God reminded me of this poem. Not in forgetting, not in busyness, not in society, and she goes through several stanzas. It was not here that I found peace, not in this, not in that, not in the other thing. In acceptance lieth peace. And that's the crucial question. Will I say, yes, Lord? Acceptance is a willed, voluntary choice. It is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. It is not a mood. It is a resolution. It is not a condition in which I find myself. It is a disposal of myself. A willed choice. Now, the conditions in which I find myself affect my emotions, of course. And they affected the psalmist's emotions. And he said, what time I am afraid, admitting that that certainly did happen from time to time, when I am afraid, he said, I will trust. And that's a choice. Not a mood, not a feeling, not a glandular condition. It is a choice. And so we can will to accept that which God has asked us to accept. And as I sat at her desk in her room, surrounded with these books, there were mottos on the wall. She didn't believe in putting up pictures of people anywhere in Donavore because Hindus were likely to think that they were being worshipped. And so there are very few pictures, some of scenery in her room, but never any pictures of people. But mostly texts, beautiful carved wooden texts. And one of the largest in her room says, In acceptance lieth peace. And her room was called the Room of Peace. Now, do you know what happened in that room? She was confined there for 20 years. From the time she was 63 until she died at 83, she hardly left the room at all. She was not able to be out of bed for much of the time. She had an accident which had twisted her spine and broken both ankles and legs, and had various complications from that, and was in pain for the rest of her life. And yet her room was called the Room of Peace, and the little bungalow where Lars and I stayed had the motto from Pilgrim's Progress over the door, and the name of the chamber was Peace. Peace is probably the most obvious and outstanding characteristic of the women who make a difference outside of love. I guess love is the primary thing. Jesus said it's by love that they will know who you are. But how many people do you know who bring into a room when they come peace, whose lives are characterized by peace? and order, and tranquility, and serenity? Well, not very many, but most of us know somebody. That dear little Mrs. Kershaw, she brought sunshine, and love, and joy, and peace into a home where there were six children and a step-grandmother. And Amy Carmichael, in that bed, in that room, wrote probably at least 
20 of her 40 books. Not because she liked her situation, not because there was anything very conducive to inspiration, but because she had already put herself at God's disposal and she accepted pain, helplessness, isolation, everything that to her was just the worst imaginable horror. She had prayed for years that God would never allow her to outlive what she thought of as her usefulness. She was the mother of a family, the mother of a family of about 900 people, 200 Indian and European workers and 700 children. She was Amma, the Tamil word for mother, to all of them. And there she was, cut off from her children and from the pleasure and the joy of walking around among them and riding her tricycle. She had one of those big tricycles, and they said she used to tear around so fast that she would dump it over every once in a while and fall. Now, in 2 Corinthians 12, we go back to the Apostle Paul and the lessons that he has to teach us about this principle of strength out of weakness. And you remember that in that 12th chapter, he speaks of a very strange spiritual experience. So strange that he hardly knew how to express it to begin with, and he speaks in the third person, I know a man. I know a Christian man who 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of it, I don't know, God knows, was caught up as far as the third heaven. And I know that this same man was caught up into paradise, and he, he just sort of stumbling over himself. I don't know whether it was in the body or out of it, and he tells you this twice. I don't know how to describe this thing, and then he pretty well gives himself away by letting us know that it was he. He said, about such a man as that, I am ready to boast, but I will not, will not boast on my own account, except of my weaknesses. If I should choose to boast, it would not be the boast of a fool, for I should be speaking the truth. But I refrain, because I should not like anyone to form an estimate of me which goes beyond the evidence of his own eyes and ears. And so, to keep me from being unduly elated, and I think Philip's translation says absurdly conceited, by the magnificence of such revelations, I was given a sharp physical pain, or the King James says a thorn, which came as Satan's messenger to bruise me. Now, if you stop and think, where did this sharp physical pain, Amy Carmichael's accident, Corey Ten Boom's being in a concentration camp, Paul's having a sharp physical pain, if you ask where did that come from, there are those who would say, well, it came from God, God was punishing them. There are others who would say, no, it certainly did not come from God, God would not do that to anybody. I think you have to realize that there is a mystery embodied in this very verse. I was given, why was he given the sharp physical pain? In order to keep him from becoming absurdly conceited. Now, how would God feel, how would Satan feel about Paul becoming absurdly conceited? I think he'd be tickled to death. That's certainly the kind of thing Satan is up to all the time. 
making us think that we are somebody. I mean, I've had this great spiritual experience that I can testify about for the rest of my life. And we get absurdly conceited. So Satan likes that kind of thing. But this thorn was given, he says, to keep me from being unduly elated, to save me from that. But it says in the very same verse, it came as Satan's messenger. So some of you may be wrestling with something in your life right now and wondering, did this come from God or did this come from Satan? Forget it. Don't worry about it. Satan is the one who is the author of evil, of course. God is the author of good. He is not the author of confusion. He's not the author of evil. But God's got the whole world in his hands, hasn't he? He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. He's got the tiny little babies in his hands. He's got the planets, the galaxies, the clams, the lobsters, the giraffes, the drunks, the drug addicts, and all the beautifully dressed, gorgeous ladies in Atlanta in his hands. And whatever Satan may be doing, attempting to make us absurdly conceited or any other horrible thing that Satan would love to do, God is in control of that finally. And God is going to make that thing which seems so satanic and straight out of the pit of hell, he can make that a receptacle of power. If you say, yes, Lord, he can make it a chariot. Do you understand what I'm saying? Make any sense? So what does Paul say then? What, was, what would your response be if you got a thorn? Well, obviously, the first thing you're going to do is to try to extract it. And this was a sh kind of a sharp physical pain, which was not extractable. And so what did he do but pray for a miracle? Three times I begged the Lord to rid me of it. Just what you and I would have done. First, we would have gotten the tweezers. And when that didn't work, we would have tried to get somebody else to get a needle or do something. You would have done everything you could, and then maybe you would have gotten around to asking the Lord to help you and begging him to do something about this sharp physical pain or whatever it is. And I'm very glad that there are various translations here because I think we can apply it to anything at all that is piercing our soul. Three times, Paul says, and only three, I beg the Lord to rid me of it. But his answer was, my grace is all you need. Power comes to its full strength in weakness. Power comes to its full strength in weakness. So what is Paul's response to this amazing revelation from God? God is saying to him, in effect, you don't need a miracle. You need grace. How many times have you heard television preachers tell you that you need a miracle? What you need is a miracle. <laughs> now, maybe you do. But I'm not going to tell you that that's what you need. And I don't think anybody knows that that's what you need except God. And if that is what you need, I think that's what God will give you. But God doesn't normally work through miracles of the kind we're looking for. Very seldom, and I remember hearing that great Catherine Kuhlman. I heard her in 1948, and I heard her again in the late uh, 
60s, I guess it was, when she died, just before she died. And every, every radio program of hers, which was every day, and I used to listen to her to my second husband's great disgust at that time. He couldn't bear to listen to her, but every program she opened with, I believe in miracles because I believe in God. And I can still see her on the platform. She stood with perfect poise and she had a very bony finger and that's what she said, I believe in God. And I also heard her say one of the first questions I'm going to ask Jesus is why didn't you heal them all? And I believe that according to the statistics of her ministry, there was never more than 10% of any given audience. And when people got healed, it wasn't because they touched Catherine Kuhlman. She had police escorts to make sure nobody touched her because she didn't want them to think that she had the power. And she would say, not once, but over and over and over again, Catherine Kuhlman never healed anybody. That is the mercy of God. And they got healed. And so Paul is begging the Lord to rid him, and the Lord is saying, what you need is not that kind of a miracle. What you need is to learn to know my grace. And my grace is all you need. My radio program has generated shoals of mail. And it is staggering to Lars and me to read those letters filled with the most unimaginable, indefinable, unspeakable problems. Things that make me know I've never had a problem in my life. And everybody wants to know, what shall I do? What shall I do? Counsel me. Tell me. And I wish that I could just give them these six words. My grace is all you need. Elizabeth Elliot has nothing else to say, really. The bottom line is trust and obey. If you obey, the grace is going to be there to do what you can never do. But God's grace does not work in a vacuum. God's grace goes to work on your nature. God's grace goes to work on my nature. And he says, I want you to do this, and when you do this, what you can do, I will do what you can't do. And it is my simple, humble, faithful, very likely hidden obedience out of which God is going to make some kind of a difference. Your obedience matters. So what is his response, Paul's response to God's answer? Instead of complaining, instead of saying, Lord, that's not what I asked you for, he says, I shall therefore prefer to find my joy and pride in the very things that are my weakness. Now, preference is a choice, isn't it? This is what I prefer, and so this is what I'm going to do. You do what you prefer. People generally do pretty much what they prefer if they can, if they can possibly manage it. And he says, I shall prefer. This is an act of the will, conscious act of the will, not going with his feelings. 
I shall prefer to find my joy and pride in the very things that are my weakness. For what reason? How stupid that would sound to just say that. Well, I'm just tickled to death with all my weaknesses. I'm just delighted. Why? Because, he says, then the power of Christ will come and rest upon me. If I find my joy, in other words, if I accept, if I say, yes, Lord, I will take this thing, I will get into this chariot, I will hold up my cup, and I will find my joy in this very thing which is so hard for me to take. Because then, through my acceptance, which is really all I can do, the power of Christ will come upon me, will come and rest upon me. Therefore, he says, I am well content, for Christ's sake, with weakness, contempt, persecution, hardship, and frustration. Anybody here content with all of those things? Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, to me, this is absolutely fantastic to think that out of that weakness, and here's the giant, the spiritual giant, the great apostle saying, when I am weak, then I am strong. And here was the man who was so powerful back in his pre-Christ days, had a great reputation, and when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, I came to you weak and in fear and shaking. But he says, I find I have decided to prefer to find my joy in the very things that are my weakness so that the power of Christ will come and rest upon me. Therefore, I am well content for Christ's sake with weakness, contempt, persecution, hardship, and frustration. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I think of one more little lady who made a difference in my life, and she was a Georgian from Augusta. And I know that I'm skating on very thin ice if I try to tell you in the way she said it what she said to me. But um, one day, she and I, she was the house mother in the dormitory where I lived in Wheaton College, and I, just a student, came into her room one day, and she and I used to have some long heart-to-heart talks. And she said to me one day, in her charming way, she always had this charming way of clasping a very ample bosom that I don't have. (laughs) And she was only about up to here on me. She was just this tiny little lady with this wonderful... Augusta, Georgia accent, so forgive me because it will not be accurate, but she clasped her bosom and she always called me Betty. You know, Betty, B-E-T-T-Y, becomes B-E-D-D-Y in Georgia and the Y becomes an I and it's Betty. And she said to me, oh, Betty, I came to Wheaton to be a spiritual counselor. But here I am, carrying mops and toilet paper across the campus. (laughs) Now, Catherine Cumming was a spiritual counselor to hundreds of girls. But believe me, the power of her message and the difference that she made in the lives of us girls was enormously increased because... This little lady who had lived in a columned southern mansion filled with servants and never had carried mops and toilet paper in that house, I'm sure, was willing to carry mops and toilet paper across the campus of Wheaton College. 
And when I saw her years later in a retirement home in Florida, I reminded her of what she had said to me on that day. And she blushed to the roots of her white hair and she clasped her less than ample bosom then. <laughs> and she said, oh, Betty, did I really say that? <laughs> and I said, yes, and I want you to know what it meant to me. And I told her, she said, to think of the mercy of God that he allowed me to carry mops and toilet paper for him. Strength comes out of weakness. This little lady had been disinherited by her family, had to go to work as a housewoman. A woman who made a difference. Remember the receptacles of power and the chariots of God. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And we'll keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.